Father, we're grateful for today and grateful for a new month, grateful for an opportunity to learn of you today, to worship you, uh, grateful to fellowship with your people, grateful later on to partake of the Lord's table. And I do ask, Lord, for the illuminating ministry of the Spirit. I do ask that the Spirit would get his message across to your people today, whatever he wants to share with us by way of encouragement, correction, whatever it need be. And so I just pray that he would have unfiltered, unfettered access to these uh, worship services. I also pray for the children's ministry and everything that's meeting in this building today. And I do ask that you would get your way. And we're going to pause just for a moment and enter into a few moments of silence where we can do private business with you and prepare our hearts to receive from you. Lord, we're grateful for the promise of 1 John 1, 9, which doesn't save us, but it certainly is needed to restore broken fellowship if necessary. And so uh, thank you for that promise. And we just ask, Father, that as your word is taught, your ways will be known today at Sugarland Bible Church. We'll be careful to give you all the praise and the glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name. God's people said... Amen. Well, good morning, everybody. Happy March. We're marching through March already. And uh, let's take our Bibles, if we could, this morning and open them to the book of Ezekiel. Chapter 38 and verse 2. And we're continuing our study on the Middle East meltdown. Um, This is not something we started last week because of the Russian invasion, interestingly enough. Um, I don't have that much influence in politics, believe it or not. Um, But it's actually a a study we started at the beginning of the new year, sort of working our way verse by verse through Ezekiel 36 through 39, and look at this, we just happen to be in Ezekiel 38, verse 2. How about that? Talk about timing. So we've gone through Ezekiel 36, which is that wonderful passage predicting the physical and spiritual restoration of Israel in the last days. And then we've gone through, completed last time, chapter 37, which are basically two illustrations of the content Ezekiel saw in chapter 36. And those two illustrations are the valley of the dry bones, first part of the chapter, and then the second part of the chapter is the vision of the two sticks coming together. 
And as I mentioned earlier, both of those are basically metaphors that God gave Israel. God gave Ezekiel 2,600 years ago concerning his plan to restore the nation of Israel in the last days. So that much has been covered, and then the question becomes, okay, what is the instrument or what is the tool that God is going to use to bring his elect nation back to life, not just physically, but spiritually? And that question is answered in Ezekiel chapters 38 and 39, which are probably two of the most important prophetic chapters you could ever study. And it's describing there this tremendous invasion that will come against Israel from the north. And it will ultimately lead to Israel's conversion. So you can take chapters 38 and 39 and put the whole thing together as an outline because I think these chapters are meant to be read together. Verses 1 through 13, the invasion is planned. Verses 14 and 6 through 16, the, eight, the invasion is executed. But then when you get to verse 17 through chapter 39, verse 20, you find that the invaders are defeated. So there's a happy ending to this. And then you get to chapter 39, verses 21 through 29, and you have the results of the invasion, which is a converted, believing Israel. So we started just last time, we barely got into it, the invasion planned. And there's two planners here. The first planner is God. Because God is the one actually drawing these invaders into the Middle East. But the second planner is Gog, the leader of the coalition. Because he thinks it's his plan. And when we get to verse 13, which I don't think we will get to today, you'll see that he thinks it's his plan. That's what's going on in his mind, verse 13. But he forgets verses 1 through 9 where it was actually God's plan all along. So God is so big that he can use the decisions of his creatures that are in rebellion against him to execute his own will. And that's what's happening in these chapters. So we barely started to work our way through God's um, intention. And I think we left off right there in the middle of verse 2. It says, Son of man, set your face towards Gog, that's the ruler of this coalition, of the land of Magog, the prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal, and prophesy against him. So as we go through these verses, particularly verses 1 through 7, you're going to see all these names. Rosh, Magog, Persia, Cush, Put, Meshach, Tubal, Gomer, and Tagorma, and most Christians read these names and they just kind of throw up their hands because it's just, I don't read this in the Houston Chronicle, for example. I mean, I don't, I don't see this in mainline newspapers. And the way to unpack it is to remember what we taught in Genesis 10. 
And you'll see virtually all of these names mentioned in Genesis 10, which is a description of the table of nations where the nations settled following the Noahic flood and following the Tower of Babel incident. And you can use scholarly sources like Josephus and Herodotus to track where these people groups meant, uh, went, I should say. And then it's just a matter of taking a look at the modern nations containing those people groups, and you can understand every single player here in this tremendous northern invasion. And once you do that analysis, you'll look at your headlines and you won't, you won't believe how up to speed the Bible is with today. Despite the fact that this was given to Ezekiel 2,600 years ago. So it's really a passage that's happening in terms of stage setting in real time before our very eyes. In fact, of all of the prophetic areas of scripture that I think are most pertinent to today, I would have to pick this. This would be it. So here's the names of all of these different players, and we've just only had a chance to go through a couple of them. The first one mentioned, and we did this last time, was Magog. And Josephus, who was a Jewish historian, he wrote just a little after the time of Christ, in his Antiquities, identifies Magog as the Scythians, And we basically know that the Scythians migrated from Central Asia to Southern Russia about the 8th to the 7th century. So I'm sort of confident that Magog is a reference to the groups there in Central Asia. You know, all of the stands, Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, Kyrgyzstan, uh, Turkmenistan, and we could throw into the mix Afghanistan. And when you remember what happened recently with the United States and Afghanistan, how we pulled out and left, happened to leave them, you know, what was it, $80 billion or something like that in weapons, maybe the number's higher than that. Uh, you start to understand that, oh my goodness, we just armed one of the nations that's going to come against Israel in the last days. The second one we went into was Rosh. And there's a lot of people, and I mentioned this in detail last week, and so I won't go through all the arguments again. And I mentioned it on Pastor's point of view last Friday a couple of days ago, went through the same arguments, but there's a lot of people out there that think Rosh has zero to do with Russia because Rosh is a common noun, they think, and not a proper noun, identifying a specific place of geography. So here's one prophecy guy. Um, I'm not trying to pick on him. I'm just trying to show you the mentality that's out there. He tweeted recently that no, Russia is not Magog. Now that much I agree with. It's not Magog. In Hebrew, Rosh means head. So you might recognize the Hebrew holiday Rosh Hashanah, uh, which means something beginning, something new. And so a lot of people think Rosh is used the exact same way here. 
it's not talking about a specific people group or a specific geographical group. It just means head, chief, top, summit. So you'll notice that in his, uh, Derek Gilbert's Ezekiel 38 and 39 map, he's got all of these nations mentioned, but there's no Russia. And the reason there's no Russia mentioned here in his map is because he thinks Rosh is just a common noun and not a proper noun or a proper name. I'm sorry to disappoint King James only people. You know, I, I generally like the King James Bible, but it wasn't the English version that Paul used, contrary to what everybody tells you. It's a very, very good translation, but it's not perfect. And you'll notice that the King James Bible doesn't have the word Rosh in a translation of verse 2. Because the King James Bible is treating Rosh as a common noun, not as a proper name, proper noun. The New American Standard Bible, which also is very good, but not perfect either in other areas, you'll notice the name Rosh is mentioned. So who's right here? The KJV, and I have to say that very slowly because when I say it fast, sometimes I say KGB. (laughs) And, And that would really be newspaper exegesis if I did that. So who's right here? The New American Standard or the KJ, uh, here we go, KJV. Uh, we think the, in this case, the New American Standard Bible has it right. We went through all the different arguments last time. And we think that Wilhelm Gesenius, a scholar, scholar, the father of lexicography, who wrote a standard academic book all the way back printed in 1847. So he wasn't doing newspaper exegesis in 1847 because Russia was not doing the stuff that it's doing today. So he wasn't reading the headlines back into the Bible. But Gesenius simply says that Rosh is a proper noun. So the NASB is right here and the KJV has it wrong. I took you to some articles uh, from different scholars like Clyde Billington, writing in the Michigan Theological Journal, who tracks the proper name Rosh through a ton of extra-biblical sources. And his conclusion is that the Rosh people of the area north of the Black Sea form the people known today as the Russians. Gesenius says the exact same thing. He says of Rosh, it's a proper name of a northern nation mentioned with Tubal and Meshach. He says undoubtedly the Russians. So the vantage point that I teach from here concerning Rosh is Rosh is just as much a people and a place as is every other player mentioned on this list. It's just as much a people and a place, as is Meshach and Tubal and all of the other names uh, that we're going to discuss today. So that is just sort of a recap um, from last week. There's a major clue, and we'll see this today in our study, hopefully as time permits, but it talks about this invasion coming from the remote north. It says it three times. And the question is, remote north from what? 
And when you study Bible prophecy, you have to think the way God thinks. To God, the nation of Israel is the centerpiece of all divine activity. The nation of Israel represents the only place on planet Earth where the God of the universe covenanted to a particular people, the nation of Israel, a track of real estate. And we see that, we saw that in our Genesis studies. You see that in Genesis 15. So in Bible prophecy, when it says uh, the remote north, or it talks about an invader from the south, or an invader from the east, etc., it's always relative to Israel. Because Israel, Ezekiel 5, verse 5, is the center of the nations. And even in our same chapter, if you look at verse 12, it talks about the nation of Israel and the city of Jerusalem, and it says those who live at the center of the world. And the word for center in both of these verses is the Hebrew word for navel or belly button, which is the center of the body. So just as the belly button is the center of the body, as far as God is concerned, the nation of Israel is the center of all divine activity in the end times. And that's why we believe that we're living in the last days because of the rebirth of the nation of Israel, 1948. If you don't have that piece of the jigsaw puzzle in place, you have absolutely nothing. Because the center of all divine activity in terms of prophecy is the nation of Israel because of God's covenant to the nation of Israel in the Abrahamic covenant going back to Genesis 15. So then when it keeps talking about the uttermost north, the remote north, it's just a matter of starting there in the land of Israel and going due north and you run into, of course, Russia. So that would be a second clue that Rosh is Russia. So Rosh is a proper name. Rosh can be traced to the people groups of Russia, as Gesenius and others have said. And then there's, if that weren't enough evidence, we have this further clue about this invader coming from the remote north and just geographically, starting with Israel, which is the centerpiece of all divine activity. Rosh is Russia because it clearly is due north or to the remote north of Israel. So that becomes the significance of the recent events concerning the Russian invasion of the Ukraine. Um, you, the Ukraine is between Russia, according to this map anyway, and Israel. So when Putin makes a move like this, I say to myself, well, this is very sad and this is very tragic. Um, I hope we can get our friends and family and missionaries out of harm's way. I say that with one part of my brain. But the other part of my brain says I'm really not surprised. See, the whole world community is shocked that this has happened. I, I am not surprised because I'm a student of Ezekiel, as you are. And Ezekiel predicted a aggressive Russia in the last days, ultimately with an agenda to move uh, from the north to the south into the land of Israel. And I find it very interesting that on the eve of this invasion, um, I covered this on Pastor's Point of View, if you want to get the 
documentation, but one of the folks there close to Putin, I think the UN ambassador, Russia's uh, ambassador to the United Nations, you know, basically said, uh, you know what, we don't recognize Israel's sovereignty over the Golan Heights, and we don't recognize Israel's sovereignty over the city of Jerusalem. Even though Donald Trump, as you know, and we have to be in the last days with a name like Trump, right? The last Trump. But Donald Trump, as you know, that's not very good exegesis either. But Donald Trump, of course, recognized Israel's sovereignty over the Golan Heights and moved our capital from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, recognizing Israel's sovereignty over uh, Jerusalem or indicating that Jerusalem is the capital of undivided Israel going back to the time of David, basically 3,000 years. So when the ambassador of Russia on the eve of this Ukrainian invasion says, ah, we don't recognize those things, you start to see that they have much greater ambitions than simply invading the Ukraine and other countries. I mean, the ultimate agenda is to move into the Middle East, which is exactly what Ezekiel says. So is the Russian invasion of the Ukraine, is that a fulfillment of Bible prophecy? No, it's not. The fulfillment of Bible prophecy will be the move all the way into the land of Israel, which eventually will happen. It looks to me like it's going to happen sooner rather than later. The Russian invasion of the Ukraine is stage setting for this final prophecy. So we do not believe the prophecies are happening today in terms of fulfillment in real time. But we do believe that the stage is being set for the orchestration of these events. And so that's where I put this Russian invasion of the Ukraine. It sure makes the Ezekiel scenario a lot very, very credible. And you have President, former President Obama during one of the presidential debates with Mitt Romney, and you can watch this on YouTube, saying that the Cold War is over. And I find this very interesting because I came of age as an undergraduate student in a political science department that basically all they all taught us that the Cold War is over, we've got to have the peace dividend, we've got to, you know, melt down our arms and whatnot and use it on social programs. And I, I always said to myself, the Cold War is not over. Uh, this is sort of like um, one step backward, two steps forward with Glasnost and Perestroika. And I remember being looked at just as almost a lunatic when I would express my views in class and almost being laughed at. And the reason I knew the Cold War wasn't over is not because I was the smartest guy in the room. It's because I, I knew what the prophet Ezekiel said about this. And so suddenly the Russian bear wakes up and rolls over neighboring Georgia in 2008. And then they become aggressive with the Crimea in 2014. And now, just within the last week or two, they make this bold move into the Ukraine that nobody um, th thought whatever could happen. Because the Cold War is over, right? Well, it's not over. Because Bible prophecy says it's not over. 
And I was listening to one reporter. He was saying, yeah, they're going to go as far as Poland. And I said, Poland? Are you kidding me? They're they're, they're not going to go as far as Poland. They're going all the way into the Middle East. Now, I don't have a date and time when this is going to happen, but eventually it's going to happen. And they're moving, as far as I can tell, in the correct uh, direction, coming from the remote parts of the north. So that's a little bit about Rosh or Russia. You keep reading there in verse 2. Son of man, set your face toward Gog of the land of Magog. That would be Central Asia. The prince of Rosh. And notice these other names. Meshach and Tubal. And prophesy against him. So who is Meshach? Well, Josephus in his antiquities uses a word that many believe he's speaking of Meshach because he's explaining where Noah's descendants settled after the flood. And you'll notice that Josephus identifies Meshach with the Cappadocians. And you say, Cappadocia, Cappadocia, Cappadocia. I've read that in the Bible before. Oh, there it is, 1 Peter 1.1. 1, 1. Peter gives us his audience. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, um, who are chosen. That's where Cappadocia is. That's who Peter was writing to. And, of course, the modern nation containing Cappadocia is, is Turkey. You'll notice that Herodotus in his histories, and keep in mind when Herodotus wrote, he wrote about 450 B.C., so he is within almost a century of Ezekiel's prophecies. He identifies a particular sea that we we think there is the Black Sea, and he uses a couple of names there that many think is speaking of Meshach and Tubal, and he talks about these groups living south east of the Black Sea. And if you go southeast of the Black Sea, you run into what nation? You run into Turkey. And it's very interesting as we go through this, you'll see Ezekiel uses four names that relate to Turkey. Now, Turkey, let's let's talk Turkey. Shall we do that for a minute? I was going to name this Let's Talk Turkey, but I thought that might be a little a bit of an overkill. But nevertheless, um, it's kind of interesting when you look at the trajectory of Turkey because Turkey at one time was a place where Israelis took their vacations. It was um, a place that recognized the modern state of Israel. And now Turkey, like Iran, which we'll talk about in a moment, has been Islamicized, and because they've now gone to Islamic ideology, they've turned against Israel, and they've turned against the West. And so Bible prophecy students for a long time said, you know, keep your eye on Turkey. Turkey's going to shift. And lo and behold, that's what's happened in modern times. Frank Gaffney, formerly of the Reagan administration, Um, said, and he's the president of the Center for Security Policy. Uh, He comes on a lot on the different cable shows. 
According to Frank Gaffney, president of the Center for Security Policy, Turkey is transitioning from, quote, a secular democracy with a Muslim society into a state governed by radical Islamic ideology and hostile to Western values and freedoms, close quote. That's a dated quote. He said that back in 2006. And when you watch modern-day Turkey and Erdogan and all of these things happening there, again, you can see how what he spoke of in 2006 is accelerating. One of the things to understand about Islamic ideology is they actually believe that Allah ascended back to Muhammad on a steed named Barak. I can't make this stuff up. The steed's name is Barak. And he did that from Jerusalem. Now, they have absolutely no reference to this in the Quran, but modern-day Islam believes this. And so any type of Jewish Hebrew presence on that land, in that city, is a disrespecter of Allah. And so as Islam virtually took over Turkey virtually took over Iran, um, you can see why those nations shifted. And now the political ideology is in place for this northern invasion spearheaded by, spearheaded by Russia. So Islam and all of these nations, with the possible exception of Rosh, and I say possible exception because there's a growing um, population of Islamic folks uh, in Rosh as well. But all of these nations, with the possible exception of Rosh, the, com- the, the tie that binds the common denominator is Islam. And most Westerners look at Islam as if it's just another religion. In fact, when you go through the Quran and you look at the founding documents of Islam, a very small percentage of what is discussed has to do with religion. It's all about politics. It's a world conquest ideology with a particular animosity for religious reasons to the nation of Israel. So the Islamization of that part of the world, even in things like the Arab Spring, you'll recall, when um, more moderate Muslim theocracies were toppled in replace of more radical theocracies, all, all of that I put into the category of stage setting. So the right political conquest ideology is in place for this northern invasion. And so that's why Turkey becomes very, very interesting. And then you go down to verse 3 as we're trying to go through this uh, verse by verse. And Ezekiel is told by God and say... Thus says the Lord God, I am against you, O Gog, prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. So God is against this attack. You go back to, um, I guess it was the prior verse, actually verse 1, where it says, end of verse 1, Actually, I'm sorry, not verse 1, verse 2. Prophesy against. 
When God says prophesy against, he's giving his own posture against this northern invasion. God says to Ezekiel, I want you to prophesy against this because I am against this. And you see that repeated there in verse uh, verse 3. So who is Gog, G-O-G, that's the leader. Who is Rosh, Rosh is Russia. Who are Meshach and Tubal, Meshach and Tubal, for reasons I've tried to explain, we believe are modern day Turkey. And then you go to verse 4 and you start to see that it's actually God that's behind all of this. They think they're invading for their own reasons, but it's actually God that's put this appetite into their hearts for this invasion to showcase his glory, which God has a right to do because his purposes in human history are doxological. He works in history to glorify himself. And boy, is he going to glorify himself at the end of these chapters. It says, verse 4, I will turn you about and I will put hooks into your jaw, or jaws, I should say, and I will bring you out. So why are they invading? God is yanking at them, saying it's time. Now, do these enemies of Israel know they're doing God's will? No, they don't have the foggiest idea. They think they're doing their own will. So the divine perspective is given in verse 4. The human perspective is given in verse 12. They think they're coming against Israel because of what it says in verse 12. But the truth of the matter is they're coming against Israel because God is dragging them out. It's a beautiful uh, picture if you're into this debate between sovereignty and free will. Pastor, do you believe in sovereignty or free will? My answer is yes. There's clearly both of them here. God is pulling them, and at the same time, they think that they're executing their own will. So what's their ambition? It's given in verse 12, to capture spoil, to seize plunder, to turn your hand against the waste places, which are now inhabited, and against the people who are gathered from the nations who have acquired cattle and goods and who live at the center of the world. So they think they're coming against Israel because of wealth or money. And when we get to verse 12, not today, I'll show you some modern finds in the nation of Israel, which have made Israel phenomenally wealthy, exactly like Ezekiel said would happen. So they think they're coming to get the wealth. And it's kind of, it's interesting to listen to the commentators try to explain the Russian invasion of the Ukraine. They talk about crops. They talk about things that Putin can get his hands on financially. You know, they talk about that warm water seaport, which they find necessary. And a lot of the discussion comes down to money. It comes down to economics. And when I listen to all these talking heads on TV who really, as far as I can tell, most of them know absolutely nothing about Ezekiel 38. And they're all talking about an invasion because of economics. I'm saying, well, that's what God said would happen. This is just a small step in a direction that will land them ultimately in the Middle East to seize Israel's wealth. Now, the second part of verse 4 is a big stumbling block for literal interpretation. 
Um, there is no prophet that tests your interpreter of the Bible as a literal interpreter other than Ezekiel. If you want to know where someone is at in terms of hermeneutics, the science and art of Bible interpretation, or you want to know where they're at concerning the end times, just let them interpret Ezekiel for you, and you'll learn real fast. Because Ezekiel says things like, my servant David will reign over them. Well, as we saw last week, David means David. Uh, Ezekiel will talk about things like a great millennial temple that will actually have animal sacrifices that will function in the millennial kingdom. And so, Pastor, what does that mean? Well, here's what it means. There's going to be a great temple having animal sacrifices in the millennial kingdom. And here's another place where your decision to be a literal interpreter or not is severely tested because as you look at the second part of verse 4, it mentions warfare that looks ancient. And if you look at the end of verse 4, it says your army and horses and horsemen and all of them splendidly attired, a great company with buckler and shield, all of them wielding swords. So you see buckler, shield, swords, horses, horsemen. And you say, well, that can't be literal because this is describing a modern day invasion and people fight with guns and tanks and nuclear weapons and all of that kind of thing. So there are basically two ways to handle this. And a lot of my friends who are very good on prophecy go a different direction than I go. They say, well, Ezekiel, he really didn't understand what a tank was or a nuclear weapon. So he just used an analogy from his own day to describe something he didn't understand. And that, okay, that's a possibility But the more I've looked at this, the more I think it's actual horses and horsemen. Um, I'm not the only one who believes this. Uh, Paul Lee Tan, who wrote one of the best books on Bible prophecy you could ever read. Uh, The title of it is The Interpretation of Prophecy. He says of these verses, interestingly, these prophesied military instruments those centuries old, have not been made obsolete. The horse, for instance, is still in warfare on certain kinds of um, terrain. Here is Charles Lee Feinberg, another great interpreter of Bible prophecy. In his Ezekiel commentary, going back to 1963, I think this is 69, excuse me, says some have found great difficulty in the references to armor, buckler, shield, sword, and helmet. But even in our day, advanced weapons of war, in advanced weapons of warfare, it is interesting to learn that some parts of the world, some parts of the conf, world conflict is now going on with primitive weapons. Then he puts in parenthesis, he kind of gives himself an out here. How else could an ancient writer have described warfare? 
He knew nothing of planes or guns. So he's giving the two options. Either you take this at face value or you say Ezekiel was trying to describe something that he didn't have the vocabulary to describe. So he uses vocabulary from his own day. The the more I'm thinking about this, the more I think Ezekiel is speaking literally. One of the reasons I think this is because of the mountains. As you go through Ezekiel 36, we did this in verse 1, verse 4, verse 6, and verse 8. It keeps saying mountains, 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 mountains. Over in chapter 39, verse 2, it says, I will turn you around and drive you on and take you up from the remote parts of the north and bring you against the mountains of Israel. Verse 4, you will fall on the mountains of Israel. Now, I'm no expert on warfare, but it just seems to me in those mountainous terrains, it's much easier to navigate those um, on horseback than with modern-day tanks and things of that nature. I've given you before this quote from Mark Hitchcock and a similar quote from Arnold Fruchtenbaum indicating that those mountainous terrains came into the land of Israel post-June 5th, 1967, the Six-Day War. And then Donald Trump basically recognized Israel's annexation of the Golan Heights, which is sort of a buffer zone between Israel and Syria. And in that mountainous terrain, or in that buffer zone, are mountains, And so the emphasis on mountains over and over again may give an explanation why the warfare here is meant to be understood at face value and literal. But anyway, not everybody would agree with me on that, but those are your two options. You can either say, well, Ezekiel is just trying to describe warfare to the best of his ability, or the horses are actual horses that are going to be used in this end-time battle. I lean more towards the latter position. But I don't think I would start a new church over this necessarily. You know, we're the first church of the horses and Ezekiel being real horses church. Probably a bit overkill there. And you move into verse 5 and now you have the prophecies of Persia and others. It says Persia, Ethiopia, and put with them. All of them with shield and helmet. Now, Persia, of course, is very interesting because when the times of the Gentiles started in the times of Daniel, Daniel saw four world kingdoms that would trample down Israel. The first was Babylon, or the head of gold, who trampled down Israel from about 605 to 539. And the next one Daniel saw, and it's mentioned in the text, in Daniel 8 and Daniel 10 and Daniel 5, is Persia, which is the chest and arms of silver. So Babylon, head of gold, Persia, chest and arms of silver. And so a lot of your Bible takes place with the Persians in control. That's the Persia that's mentioned here in verse 5. Here is a copy of the Cyrus Cylinder. 
which is Cyrus's boasts as he was conquering Babylon, the head of gold. And it was under Cyrus and later subsequent Persian kings that the nation of Israel was allowed to return from the 70-year Babylonian captivity. So the Persians, biblically speaking, were the good guys. As you go through the books of Ezra, Esther, Nehemiah, as you read prophets like Zechariah, Haggai, the backdrop of all of that biblical material is the Persian Empire. As the nation of Israel was coming back from the 70-year captivity, they came back in three waves, which you can see on this chart here. And here is Ezekiel seeing Persia turn against the nation of Israel in the last days. And I I have a sneaking suspicion that this prophecy completely and totally confused him. Because Persia is our help. Uh, Persia is our ally. And Persia became a modern day nation. I think Persia is the easiest nation to identify on Ezekiel's list. Because in 1935, that country, Persia changed its name to what? To Iran. Now, prior to 1979, just like Turkey, Ezekiel's prophecy probably seemed absurd because Persia or Iran was among the first to recognize the modern state of Israel. In fact, Persia or Iran was an ally of the West with the Shah. But all of us said, something's got to give here. I mean, Persia's got to change. Because Ezekiel is seeing Persia joining this coalition with Rosh and Turkey invading the land of Israel. And the big change happened in 1979, where the Shah was deposed and replaced by the Ayatollah, and Iran then became known as the Islamic Republic of Iran. That was in the days, you remember, of the long gas lines. Gee, history is almost repeating itself, isn't it? Uh, the long gas lines, and that was when Jimmy Carter was president. I know that's a bad memory for some of you. I think, well, maybe I shouldn't have said this but I already let it out, so I better say it. I think Biden really appreciates Jimmy Carter. (laughs) Or the other way around, I guess. Carter appreciates Biden. There we go. So I won't won't continue with that one. Because now Jimmy Carter says he's no longer the worst president in American history. (laughs) But with with that shift came an Islamization of a country. And if you don't think politics matters, just look at this graphic here. Uh, As you look at the top of the screen, you see what Iran was like prior to 1979. And everybody, you know, talks about how bad the Shah was. And he was a human rights violator. But the evil taking place in Iran today 
is nowhere near anything that the Shah brought in. In the upper part of the screen, you see what Iran was like pre-1979, before the country became Islamicized. So you see people in ordinary Western-style dress. You see women with dresses on where they can show their legs. You see women walking around without, you know, all of these burqas and things like that on. You see women allowed to get education, to drive an automobile without her husband's permission. I mean, you see a country that looks pretty normal, and at the bottom of the screen is basically a representation of Iran post-1979 to the present. This is what happens when is is when a country becomes Islamicized, is you see the burqas, um, you see the rights of women disappearing, you see things like it takes uh, three women's, women's testimony to countervail a man's testimony in a court of law, you see the abuse of women, you see a woman walking several feet behind her husband, in a burqa, in the Middle Eastern heat, and that is now, very sadly, post-1979 Iran of today. So Ezekiel himself saw 2,600 years ago the character of Persia changing. In biblical times, Ezekiel's prophecy made no sense, and up to 1979, Ezekiel's prophecy made no sense, but boy, does it make sense right now. So given enough time, history will catch up with what the Bible says will happen. It's just a matter of waiting on God. And when I speak against these nations, I want to be very clear here. When I speak against Turkey, when I speak against Russia, when I speak against Iran, I'm not speaking against the people of Iran. You see the difference? I'm not speaking against the people of Russia. I'm not speaking against the people of Turkey. What I'm speaking against is the character of the regimes that enslave these people. And God, I think, is doing a tremendous work through the underground church in all of these places. There are many, many people in this part of the world that are being reached in an unprecedented way right now as we speak. So God is not anti the people. What he's anti is the enslaving ideology uh, which has jurisdiction over the people. So you can tell a lot about a nation by what it teaches its kids. Show me what you're teaching the kids in the schools, and I'll show you the character of any nation. So here is a quote from Yoram Edinger as he's testifying uh, before our own Congress, trying to convince our own members of our legislature of the true character of Iran today, and he's simply quoting from their own school books what they're teaching the Iranian children. He says in his newsletter, Iranian school books, such as the Quran and Life, grade 12, page 125, prepare Iranian children for the Ayatollah's sublime goal, the apocalyptic horrifying millenarian military battle against the USA and other arrogant oppressors of the world, which are, which are ostensibly 
led by idolatrous devils. See, he's got quotes there. This is what the children are reading in these so-called textbooks. While the Savior, the infallible, immortal, immortal, divinely ordained, and eventual global leader, the Mahdi, has not surfaced yet, Iranian children are taught that the battle is already raging throughout the world, awaiting their sacrifice. School textbooks of Western democracies are the most, Edinger says, authentic reflection of people's values and worldview. School textbooks of tyrannies are the most authentic reflection of the nature and mission of the regimes. Iranian school textbooks reflect the strategy and tactics of the ayatollahs much more authentically than speeches, interviews, diplomatic statements, and conversations conducted by uh, the, uh, Rouhani and uh, the foreign minister there. So he's saying don't pay attention to what these talking heads in leadership positions are saying. Pay attention to what they're teaching their own kids. And once you see what they're teaching their own kids, you'll see the true character of the Iranian uh, regime. We continue with this list, and verse 5 mentions Persia, and the next thing mentioned there, or the next country mentioned, is Ethiopia. Josephus tells us, and by the way, the Hebrew doesn't say Ethiopia. It says Cush. Josephus tells us who the people of Cush are and where they settled. He writes, for the four sons of Ham, time has not at all hurt the name of Cush for the Ethiopians. See, this is why the New American Standard Bible translates this as Ethiopia. They're following what Josephus said. Over whom he reigned are even at this day, both by themselves and by all men in Asia, called the Cushites. So Cush equals Ethiopia. According to Josephus's antiquities, as he is describing where Noah's descendant Cush settled, they settled in Ethiopia. And then when you consult the Wycliffe Bible Encyclopedia, it says this, the designation Ethiopia is misleading for it did not refer to the modern state of Ethiopia. Cush bordered Egypt on the south or the modern day Sudan. So biblically, Cush went much further than modern-day Ethiopia. It went down into an area called the Sudan. So what's going on in the Sudan? Um, Renald Showers, in his wonderful book that I recommend to you called The Coming Apocalypse, A Study of Replacement Theology Versus God's Faithfulness in the End Times, says, and this was back in 2009, The Sudan is dominated by a brutal Arabic Islamic fundamentalist government that murders, rapes, and enslaves Christians and animists and is slaughtering the black Muslims in Darfur Darfur, in attempt to establish a pure Islamic state. So when you see this word 
Ethiopia, which is a translation from the word Kush, I think what we're supposed to think is the Sudan, which is a part of the world where the very one of the very worst genocides, as this quote reflects, in modern times is happening. And then we come to put, verse 5, Persia, Ethiopia, and put, with them, all of them with shield and helmet. Now we come to this entity called put, and the big, big question here is, where are we going to put put? Josephus, in his antiquities, comes to our rescue again, and he identifies put that you'll see in Genesis 10, he identifies put with Libya. So we believe that put is Libya. Now, there have been two major things that have happened in my lifetime concerning Libya. One of them is Muammar Gaddafi. You remember him? I got this just from a Wikipedia article. It says on April 5th, 1986, three people were killed and around 230 injured in the Labelle Disco and the, when the Labelle Discotheque was bombed in Western Berlin. And you remember what then President Ronald Reagan did, how he he came back with force and dealed with Gaddafi, and Gaddafi went underground and didn't resurface until much later. And so that's the difference in foreign policy between a strong president and a weak president. Uh, A strong president, you remember the Iranian hostage crisis? The very day that Jimmy Carter left office and Ronald Reagan was inaugurated, you remember what happened. The Iranians released the hostages. And this is why I believe I'm justified from the Bible in advocating a peace through strength foreign policy. And it relates to the idea of depravity. These people like Gaddafi, uh, like the Ayatollah, they are rotten to the core. And someone that is rotten to the core through total depravity, and then their sin nature is given over to what it wants to do through a hateful ideology, which is a very dangerous combination. Because war and murder already exists in the hearts of people. Mark 7 says that. And then you tell them that they have permission to exercise their warlike tendencies, where now you have depravity falling into the soil of a hateful ideology. And that's the beginning of terrorism. And these people are so dead and gone in their trespasses and sins, and they're so given over to evil that they really only understand one thing. They're they're not open to reason. Uh, They're not open to dialogue. They're not open to logic. They understand the threat of force, and they understand retaliation, just like a bully in a schoolyard understands that language. You bloody my nose, I'm coming back and I'm going to bloody your nose. You know, giving them time out, taking away dessert, uh, unfriending them on Facebook. Um, those, uh, someone that is this deranged doesn't understand that. And you can clearly see a difference in foreign policy as you just compare Jimmy Carter with Ronald Reagan. 
And the same thing happened with Gaddafi. I remember when Reagan retaliated and there was a big protest on my campus, how terrible Reagan was. But what's interesting is when Reagan retaliated, you didn't hear from Gaddafi for several decades. So April 5th, 1986, three people were killed and around 230 injured when the LaBelle discotheque was bombed in West Berlin. The entertainment venue was commonly frequented by United States soldiers. That's why it was targeted for terrorism by Gaddafi. And two of the dead and 79 of the injured were American servicemen. Libya was accused of sponsoring the bombing by the was accused of sponsoring the bombing by the US government and US President Ronald Reagan ordered retaliatory strikes on Tripoli and Benghazi in Libya 10 days later. Uh, the strikes reportedly killed at least 15 people including Colonel Gaddafi's adopted daughter. A 2001 trial in the U.S. found that the bombing had been planned by the Libyan Secret Service and the Libyan Embassy. So I just bring this up because Libya is one of the places here that that's mentioned by Ezekiel that you can read about in modern times. And something, the second major thing in my lifetime that happened with Libya is Benghazi. Uh, September 11th, uh, 2012. I just want to read an excerpt, if I could, um, from my own book. That's pretty narcissistic, isn't it? Um, but this wonderful author here says, uh, Libya began to show up on the radar screen, screens of most Americans on September 11th, 2012. Benghazi, Libya is where... The anniversary of the toppling of the Twin Towers, on the anniversary of the toppling of our Twin Towers, our embassy was attacked. An attack of this nature on an American embassy has not transpired since the hostage crisis in Iran in 1979. The Obama administration, in order to deflect criticism for failing to adequately prepare for the obvious and growing threat of danger against our embassy in Benghazi just a few weeks before a national election, does any of this ring a bell, went in front of the American people and repeatedly lied. I like this guy. He just says what he means. They blame the Benghazi incident on a spontaneous uprising caused by an amateur video critical of Islam rather than their own unwillingness to prepare appropriately and respond to intelligence reports pointing of a growing danger in the area. However, such an explanation strains credibility, uh, credulity rather, to the breaking point Why did Benghazi happen on September 11th? Why were there sophisticated armor and warfare used in this attack? Consequently, how can such an uprising be considered spontaneous and unplanned by Islamic jihadists? There's a movie out. Someone help me with the name. Uh, What's it called? 13 Hours. Uh, I watched that on a plane ride um, from here to Australia. 
I mean, it seemed like it lasted 13 hours, this movie. <laughs> but it, it, it documents and shows you everything that happened, and it shows you the warnings that were there and how the American government ignored the warnings and then at that time blamed this Islamic uprising on some amateur video. But the reason I'm bringing up Gaddafi and the reason I'm bringing up Benghazi is that is things that are happening right there with put or Libya. One other fast thing, and I'll have to come back to this, but the related to the horses, the role, and I'm reading from an article. No, this is not my article. Uh, this is an article called Downgrading for Armageddon in the Prophetic Witness magazine a few years back. It says concerning the horses, it says the role of the mule and the horse in Afghanistan fighting was recognized by the CIA in the 1980s when the Soviet Union occupied Afghanistan. The CIA also provided thousands of mules and imported them from Tennessee. Did you know that? So you read this and you say, well, horses um, and horsemen, that's not really that far-fetched because our own CIA recognized the need for horses in that part of the world going back to 1980. So all of that said, we're going to stop right there in the middle of verse Five, because at least you know who Persia is, Iran, you know who Ethiopia is, that's the Sudan, and you know who Put is, that's Libya, where recent events have happened in Libya in our own lifetime. And you can see all of this as the hand of God setting the stage for this end time invasion. Amen? All right, let's pray. Father, we're grateful for Sunday school and prophecy. Make us good students of these things in these last days. I pray for your hand of blessing on the communion service and the main service that follows. We'll be careful to give you all the praise and the glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name and God's people said, Happy Intermission.